Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's episode, Peter McDowell is the clinical director of Rochester Dermatologic Surgery and former co-director of the clinical trials office at the Wilmont Cancer Institute, both in Rochester, New York. If that last name sounds familiar, well, that's because Peter is the brother of Andrew McDowell, my co-founder and COO here at Offscript Media. Sibling rivalry bedamned, and while we may have reinforced some established biases between upstate and downstate New York, we had a fantastic conversation down the rabbit hole of clinical trial management, treatment, hospital administration, and all the fun that comes with that in the 21st century. Enjoy the show, folks. <laughs> What's so funny? My brother's in the studio. Peter McDowell joining us here. It's true. Welcome, my friend. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet what you as well. What brings you by, besides the genetic relationship to the gentleman across the table from me? Visiting <laughs> the city and meeting new people. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Where are you coming from, down from? Uh, Rochester, up, New York. Up from, I'm assuming. Up from? Up yeah. from Brooklyn, down from Rochester. Okay. Yeah. I have a funny Rochester story. I didn't know it existed uh-huh. until I went to Binghamton University. Okay. Where I didn't realize there was anything to New York State north of Westchester. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, upstate. wow, there's, yeah, there's an upstate. Yeah. And we're downstaters, I understood that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, went to school in Ohio and had been pulled over several times with New York license plates. And they all, you know, made comments about me being a big city person. Really? <laughs> Even though I was, you know, six hours away from there. So. Were those people from like Elmira? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or Skinny Atlas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the big city people of Onondaga. Oh, yeah. <laughs> big city of Rochester. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, what do you do? You're here for a reason, I understand. Yeah. So I um, have worked in cancer research primarily for the past 20 years. Lots changed. Yeah. Yeah, it has. What got you into that line of work? Um, well, I actually was considering doing a post back after college and thought I wanted to become a psychiatrist and worked in a few um, psychiatric units, which uh, they were a little bit disheartening. Um, and I ended up moving to New York and happened to get a job at Sloan Kettering. So happened to happen to. Yes. <laughs> like just walked in one day, said, I work here. And they said, OK, yes. They said, here's your badge. Welcome. OK. There was no vetting process. None no whatsoever. That's the best way to get it. Yes. Job. It's a really good institution aside from their hiring <laughs> practice. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sloan did save my life along with NYU. So yep. I'm, I have a extensive gratitude. Yes. For them doing what they did. 
Uh, I was treated with for brain cancer yep. in 1995, 96. Mm-hmm. And I w- went back and forth between NMU and Sloan Kettering over who gets the bidding war on publishing my, my tumor study. Ooh. Because it was very rare. Yeah. yeah. First I've heard of Who this. won? Yeah. Uh, I don't know who won. Uh-huh. All I know is I didn't get to keep it. Oh. That's the not tumor cool. that is. Yeah. Yeah. My husband had cancer and he wanted to keep his Metaport. And really? we, we were going to be allowed to keep it, but it needed to go to pathology first. And okay. he didn't feel like waiting. So we decided against it. So 20 years ago was the year 2000, yep. which really makes, I would assume all of us feel a little old. A little bit. But Relatively tw- breathtaking. Tw- yeah. <laughs> 20 years old was the, the start of the millennium. <laughs> right. And so yeah, cancer research back then, I, I was just coming out of the primordial ooze mm-hmm. of what the hell happened to me. I, I, I so I was a concert pianist who was supposed to go to grad school that couldn't play anymore. So I wound mm-hmm. up falling back on my uh, adjunct career, which was uh, fixing Macintoshes. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I was like that kid in Manhattan that fixed all the Macintoshes. And I was just then I got involved in marketing. Right. But like cancer research back then was like nothing. There were four drugs on the market. It was the same platins, you know, that yep. was like, uh, and there was no chemotherapy for me because nothing broke the blood brain barrier yet. Right. There wasn't that. Uh, uh, what was it called? The one that goes in your head, gliadel. Right. The gliadel waiver. It wasn't yeah. exist in the, uh, did not exist yet. Yeah. So where were you? Like it was very flotsam and jetsam back then. So I was working more in an administrative role when I first started at Sloan. Um, when you walked in the door? When I walked in the door because they <laughs> said, you can't do research yet. We don't know you. Um, but so I, I kind of just helped the patients and the providers with their, you know, experience in the day to day clinics. A lot of what we were looking at back then were the monoclonal antibodies, which were just starting to come out. Um, and so those are kind of like the the at the time they were additive therapies. Now they're right. They can be monotherapies as well. Because this was pre human genome. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we we. Um, within clinical research we follow our patients very closely and so um it was kind of all hands on deck when we had a study patient because um, we just didn't know what any of the side effects were and um everyone just had to be very cognizant of any changes with the patients so it was way back when when the boom in cancer research really started mm-hmm. the salad days i suppose yes, yes there was so little advocacy back then i remember mm. My dad and I were hunting and pecking for some support groups because I yeah. was, you know, cancer doesn't really end the day you're done. Right. And I was 22 at the time. And by 2000, I was 26 and s- still very difficult. Right. And we wound up finding these brain cancer groups full of geriatric men, largely. And you felt very out of place. And it, it took me a while to find people my age. And at the time, there were, what what are the cancer patients do that are lucky enough back then right. to live? Because survival rates back then were for abysmal yeah Hmm. well and i I, back then also it was you know people didn't have that idea that once you're done with your treatment the cancer is over go home go back to your life and enjoy yeah they didn't have the knowledge that no a lot of things have changed since you've gone through this journey you know um i'm happy now that there's advocacy there's navigators there's many many more support groups a lot with your help and hard work um but yeah, it's it's amazing how much more support there is in the AYA space, but it's sad that it's needed because it's such a growing population. Yeah, AYA being mm-hmm. adolescent and young adult for those uninitiated. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, I mean, I, we live in acronym world. Yeah. Just total acronym world. Yeah, whenever I have a new person start with me, um, 
in my clinical research department, it takes probably six to eight months just to start understanding all of the acronyms. Um, And that's before they can even really get into the meat of the job. Um, Yeah, I mean, onboarding these days is certainly a lot different than it was 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. So what are you seeing with some of the new residents coming in? Um, They're a lot more involved in research, the residents and the fellows. Right. Um, It's kind of become paramount for the training. So it's not how do we treat the patients in the clinic? It's how do we figure out new treatments for the patients in the clinic? Right. So that when you are doing this, all of these things will just kind of be, um, it'll become standard of practice. Right. So um, we we have, the the fellows are very involved in our, our transplant programs. Um, you know, they're seeing the patients on the day-to-day when they're inpatient. Um, you know, they're, they're helping to write studies. They're doing tons of literature reviews and chart reviews to um, look at cases of patients in a historical perspective with the mindset of what would we have done now with this case and how could this person in the future benefit from X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I, I've always talked about the hospitality Yeah, of cancer service, right? not really cancer treatment. No. How can the cancer centers, the hospitals do a better job in the customer aspect of navigating through a we call the shit happens store yeah and then even though you're done shopping you know you're not really done shopping right yeah yeah and i mean there's a much bigger focus on survivorship yes afterwards which is great and you know i've been lucky enough to travel to several other cancer institutes to um, get an idea of what we're doing in this country um and one place I went to is Huntsman Cancer Center. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, they really take hospitality to the next level. Right. Um, it when you walk in there, it looks like a you know five star hotel. Um, everything's wood and marble. You have these vistas of canyons while you're receiving your treatment. Mm. Um, and then Canyon Ranch for oncology. Yes, literally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's amazing. You're, you're sitting there and, uh, you know, wildlife is just leaping by. It's crazy. Um, yeah. But, but that's good progress. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, they're also offering a lot of um, benefits as far as um, alternative care. So offering um, wellness in terms of massage and um, yoga and acupuncture and not only in the setting where patients who are receiving treatment can have this benefit, but people who have gone through treatment, this is available to them. Um, so it's kind of nice, especially in like a yoga environment to be with other people who have gone through the same thing you have. So it's another kind of support group. It's not just talking about it, but living it. Well, it's the life experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask, so this, I was aware that, uh, that, that you were traveling the country and, and doing, uh, on the ground, in person, uh, gatherings of best practices, right? Yep. Um, and so, how how did that come about? This is this is a project that I think you came up with, right? In order to, it was it was a, a team effort. I um, see. And so, the cancer institute that I work with at the University of Rochester, um, currently going for NCI designation, so yes. that's National Cancer Institute designation. Um, There's only like eighteen or nineteen of them. 
I it's higher Is now. It higher now. There's three different designations within. Um, oh, they diversified the portfolio. They did. Okay. They they wanted more more people to uh, be part of it. So you can be a comprehensive cancer institute. You can be a um, cancer center of distinction, I believe, and I think there's one other. Um, like the dollar menu. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just like the dollar menu. Four for four. It's yeah. great. It's, yeah. It's essentially the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we wanted to see what these great places were doing. And one of the things we found out was no one has all the answers. And Clearly, yeah. we're all kind For of, anything. Right. But it, it, it's nice to know that we're not the only ones who are struggling with making the patient experience better, with um, rounding out, you know, the, the care sandwich. You're diagnosed, you get treatment, and we want to make sure there's a lot more at the end there. Right. Um, and so that was heartening that we're not the only ones who are, but it was a little disheartening because we should know how to work with humans a little bit better. Mm. Well, again, I think there there is a, I, it's been a difficult conversation to quantify, but how, you know, I don't want the researchers to be my best friends. Right. But at the same time, who's translating what you're doing down to a layperson level when right. you are entering a market that there's no demand for. Yep. Well, and you know, so we have informed consent forms that everyone has to read before they participate in research. And yeah, those are the iTunes uh, terms of agreement. Yes. Buttons. Yes. Yes. Basically, and we we try to make sure people read them a little closer than the iTunes terms of agreement. Um, but a lot of times the document's thirty pages, and you're yeah. explaining to somebody with no medical background what they're going to be doing to you. Right. And when it comes to like a CAR T transplant where you're going to be having stuff taken out of you and sent away and brought back and put back in you and hopefully you'll be cured. It's kind of hard to bring that down to a level everyone understands. Right. So we have um, institutional review boards who are not affiliated with Well, you hospital. de-acronymed that. I like that. You yes. started with the actual words. Yes. So IRB. Yes. <laughs> I'm learning. See? You pre-acronym. Yes. I like this. Um, so what they do is they look at all the research to make sure that it's safe um, and that any potential risks are outlined, any benefits are outlined, and then also that any documents we're giving to potential subjects or their families are able to be understood at a certain level. Right. Um, are there specific people in the hospital now that are able to babble fish that to the patients? We do have resources for the patients. I mean, it usually it is our study coordinators who are kind of explaining a lot of it. Um, the doctors are really the ones who have the conversation with the patients and kind of uh, can bring it down to a level that's a little bit easier to understand. I mean, even the, the term monoclonal antibody um, it's a lot of syllables. Yeah. Gummy bears. Like, yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to understand what that's that, three syllables. Gummy yeah. bears. Very gummy easy. Bears. Very yeah, easy totally one. easy yeah. and delicious, you <laughs> yes. know, um, but it, double it, stuffed Oreos, oh, three syllables, three syllables. Done. Yeah. No, that's four, should, four Oreo. Oreo. Oreo is three syllables. Yes. Double stuffed or right, got five. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm just going to call it Oreos yeah. should be one syllable. Agreed. <laughs> Oreo. <laughs> Or I don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you heard it here first. You heard it here first, folks. Um, but yeah, so I, I, even the translation of standard care is really difficult to, yeah. you know, have a patient and their families understand. Um, and the, the, there's so much history with research as well mm -hmm. that, um, you know, we have people who hear a clinical trial and it's shut down. 
Well, it's a, it's a boogeyman word. Right. They don't want to be lab rats. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand is in most cases, we're going to be giving them something additive to what their standard of care would be. Right. And the only reason we're doing it is because it showed somewhere. It's that like this Disney Plus. Sense. Yeah. It's not just Disney. It's still Disney. Yeah. But it's Disney Plus. Pixar's there. Yeah. You know? See? So it's they, good. See, we just came up with your, your analogy. I like it. I'm going to start using I that. I just solved all of medicine's woes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Shut, shut it down. It's yes. Disney Plus. Yeah. Our, our, our job here is done. Yeah. yeah. So, so folks, I, I have a, a question here. Now, both of you, Matt and Peter, you've, you've spent decades in this space. Um, I... Perhaps my superpower here is that I have not. Um, and so I think what I'd like to suggest, would you guys take a moment and pretend that I'm a person who has a diagnosis, a problematic diagnosis, who has no idea you know, really how a clinical trial works, why it exists, um, and what the basic considerations are for me as I consider participating in a trial? How would you how would you lay this out to me at a kindergarten level, so that I truly understand um, what the opportunities are, what the risks are? We need building blocks. Why it exists, Lego, who the players are, cotton candy, Disney Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Sign here. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the way that we typically present it to our patients is um, n- number one. What most institutions do is they'll outline any clinical trial as part of the treatment plan. So mm-hmm. um, first of all, we people need a lot of time to think about things because this throws people's lives into right. you know, a hurricane. And, yeah, objectives if it gets thrown out the window. Right? Yeah, right. you know, and it's just kind of, a, you hear that word and it's a stop. Um, so a lot of times, a lot of times when patients get to us, they've already received some sort of a diagnosis, mm-hmm. or at least it's already on the, the board. Um, if it's not, lots, oftentimes we won't even bring up a clinical trial at the time that they're initially presented with the, with the, the medical group. Right. Um, then with oncology, hematology, clinical trials, since the documents are so huge and since they're making some pretty serious decisions, um, we would encourage you to bring this home and talk about it with your support network. Um, and also at the same time, make sure that you do have a support network. Right. So that if you don't have someone at home, we want to get you keyed in with people there. We have social workers, we have financial counselors. Um, so it's it's we don't want these big decisions to be made in a vacuum with just us in the white coats, you yeah. know, it's um, not about grabbing a signature, it's right? Making sure that there's true buy-in, yeah, right. And I, I, the conversations that I've had, I mean, I'm obviously not a prescribing oncologist. The discussions we've had at the advocate level is that clinical trials are not a boogeyman. It's the worst two words ever decided to be put together in medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not a guinea pig. You're going to get the right treatment for you, but it's a better way to help you be treated as a person and not as an object. Right. And I, one of the things we also try to emphasize with, with the patients is that, um, when you go on a clinical trial, your, your team doubles in size at least. Um, 
since we are following a very specific protocol, there are people who are making sure that we are doing that day to day, minute by minute. You have your coordinator, you have um, the administration group, you have your own finance person, you have your own regulatory person, you have technical associates. That's concierge plus. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice that that happens and that they have that many more people who are involved in their treatment. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of those people who don't have a huge support network, you know, they're seeing that coordinator every time they're seeing, you know, the research nurse every time. Um, and it, it can help in that aspect as well. Not, not discounting that the treatment might help as well. Um, but having more people on your team is always nice. Back with our guest after the break. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. thing is like a lot of these conversations like the hospitality plus mm-hmm. conversation there aren't usually like patient advocates part of the conversation the mm-hmm. hospitals have enough to deal with that they don't remember or think to catalog the local resources in your community or know who every single charity is that does and how do you vet what good work right. means or the support group in the hospital is just a program of the hospitals with a specific agenda. Right. You know, not a bad agenda, but a different agenda than yeah. perhaps going to a nonpartisan, non-hospital driven group or some internet thing that could be terrible, like a right. Facebook group on yeah. occasion. So the conversation, like, again, if I were in a room with someone like you and you're terrified out of your, your fucking wits, I would say, would you like to be treated as a person? What's the most important thing for you? And that question is rarely asked. Yeah. What do you want besides, yes, don't die? What's important to you? Well, I just want to be able to go back to work. Well, if that's the case, then the trial may not be right for you because Mm -hmm. it'll debilitate you. If you want to just be home with your kids, that's okay because you'll be able to spend more time with them, but you'll be fatigued. But here's some drugs you can take to make you less fatigued. Mm. Asking what's most important to the person should be the first question that any clinical care team asks and that rarely happens. So from my vantage point, that's what I would ask you first and that you're not a guinea pig, 
This is something nearly every cancer patient goes through. And you're still getting Disney mm-hmm. with Pixar and Nat Geo, but you're also getting a little extra stuff that's exactly tailored for you mm-hmm. and the trusted. Yeah. And how, I- how often is uh, a clinical trial a possibility for a diagnosed patient? Is it virtually all the time? Or is it only under certain circumstances where there are certain uh, challenges that a person's facing? So um, the short answer is most often there is something out there. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the hospital, they might not have it open. That's why the larger institutions you know, with the larger research programs have so many more studies open. At the end of the day, you know, they are businesses. They do have agendas, um, if you will. And they don't want you going somewhere else. Right. Right. And we're going to try and find the best option for you. Um, as long as you stay here, just stay here, <laughs> stay here. No, uh, you know, it's just sometimes, uh, it might not make sense for a certain hospital to open a certain study. So, um, when you're opening a study, there are a lot of resources that go into it. So even before we have the first patient in the door, mm-hmm. you've incurred a lot of costs. Um, and if you're going to see one patient a year with that diagnosis, it might not be beneficial for us or the patient to open it here. It might be more beneficial to say this place has it and they're really good. Um, you know, we're, we're, we've entered kind of a era of, collegiality between cancer institutes and well health systems now are kind of the new norm right yeah they're not acquisitions they're partnerships right and i mean we're located kind of in western new york really close to roswell and buffalo right um a short trip down here to sloan kettering and we all kind of refer amongst each other right um so yes there is usually an option the other side of the coin is kind of there might be an option for your diagnosis. However, we there's a lot of inclusion exclusion criteria, and you know that means are you worthy? Yeah, it's very Thor hammer. Yes, <laughs> and okay. for the past twenty plus years, a lot of the exclusion criteria have remained the same, um, but that's also being addressed now. So a lot of the exclusion criteria have to do with. Um, other diseases or issues that you might have going on. Um, for example, sometimes people with diabetes couldn't participate just mm. because the way that the drug is metabolized, it could hurt them more than help them. Um, for a long time, uh, metastatic disease in the brain has been automatic exclusion, whereas now we're looking at that and taking a step back and saying, is this really going to confound results? Or can we put these this data in a separate bucket to see how this might help people? Um, you know, so yes, there are usually options, but there's a lot more that goes into it. We need to make sure what we're doing with our patients is safe. Um, we care a lot about efficacy, but the safety is paramount. Right. There's a lot of of um, n of one that goes right. into whether you're not just eligible. But can you get to one? If it's not your center, do they refer you somewhere else? Do they intentionally not tell you because they don't want to lose you? That does happen very often. It's an unspoken sadness of of entitlement and territoriality. 
And many patients that live in very rural areas, which is the majority of patients who get cancer, 80% live in not an urban area, uh, have a very difficult time taking time out from work and, and driving two hours. And if it's not an oral chemotherapy, they're in a chair for eight hours and they can't take their kids to school. So the pragmatics mm. of going on a trial can often affect whether it's worth your time right. to risk your life or improve for a specific percentile measure on how much longer you'll live with it. And many of the drugs today, like like some of the, like the Keytrudas mm -hmm. are great, or the Optivas are great, but they just prolong your life. Mm -hmm. They don't cure your cancer. And if that's valuable to you, then you have the right to make that choice if you want to go on it. Mm. But if it does make you unavailable to what matters most in your life, your job, your kids, your family, you know, working out, walking your dog, then it may not be right for you. So yeah. being able to, this whole hospitality thing also includes consumer choice. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it does go back to what you were saying about the first question that clinical care teams should ask. You know, a lot of times this person doesn't want to um, extend their life by three months potentially right? and have a whole cadre of side effects. Um, I'm lucky the place I work, we totally encourage second opinions. Um, you know, we routinely send people to other locations. But just as you were saying, the rural populations, are, we don't offer clinical trials at the 15 locations that we have in our region. Right. Um, so it's a lot of it's a matter of logistics. Um, even just ordering drug to be sent to a separate site right. is, is a huge undertaking. Um, but, you know, it, we don't even have a good mechanism to pull them in so we can offer them, you know, everything at the med medical center. Right. So there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, the good news is this is finally like a national narrative out there. Right. There have been so many startups trying to find ways to connect people to trials. But just because you're made aware of one doesn't mean you qualify, mm -hmm. you're included, you're excluded, it's geographically viable, it's financially viable. You know, there are places like Ronald McDonald House and Hope Lodge that mm -hmm. like put you up the NCIs. Yeah. What's that 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 hotel they have in Bethesda for cancer patients? Oh. Uh, I forget what it's called. Yeah, I don't remember either. But like you're still leaving your area for yeah. potentially weeks at a time with your whole family and uprooting your life to save your life potentially. You know, it, it just comes down to what's right for you. And that, to me, is the cornerstone of advocacy, making sure that someone has your back yeah. at a layperson level with minimal um, <laughs> synonyms. No, no. What's the word? A minimal. Oh, the acronyms for everything. Yeah. Minimal acronyms yeah. for everything out there. And um, how, how do you know who you can trust? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so you know, if I'm if I'm thinking about participating in a trial, um, you know, obviously the primary driver would be an interest in extending my life or improving the outcome. But at what cost um, potentially, and right. who discloses what that means to you? Right. Mm -hmm. That's usually where social workers can come in if yeah. the hospital has one. Right. And we talked about this extensively about the loss leader value of some uh, really important roles in the cancer treatment that aren't billable, mm -hmm. and how does a hospital manage? to quantify the need for a, a care coordinator or a nurse navigator yeah. um, or there's all these new uh, like HR benefits conversations at the hospital about how do you talk to your employer they'll fight insurance for you 
And obviously the big guns like Huntsman and MD, yep. Anderson have that because they can afford the lost leader factors. The community cancer centers typically don't have the means to support staff members mm. uh, that are not billable codes against right. uh, against uh, like Medicare, for example. And it's it's a real problem. So this is a, it's not solvable at all at grand scale. It really comes down to how do we uh, it's it's so nuanced. Like yeah. What what is any way that that can help a consumer know what their options are? No shit exists, and have it explained to them in a way that they can digestibly make an objective decision that's right for them. I'm guessing that traditionally, um, patients found their way to participation in clinical trials based on a recommendation from the people leading their care. Is that true? They, there are a lot of proactive patients that yeah. do the right kind of research. And, uh-huh. and honestly, if they've relapsed or if they have a family member that's gone through it, they're mm. aware mm. that that's a question to yeah. ask. I wouldn't say, is there a trial for me happens as frequently as we'd like it to happen right. in care. But it does happen. There are just preternatally proactive human beings that are aware of certain things out there. But it, it's a bell curve like anything else. Right. And there are services out there, but once again, the patient has to be proactive, you know, so the advocacy is huge. Um, you know, a lot of patients don't know that there are coupon programs out there for a lot of drugs that, you know, yeah, exist. patient assistance programs. Yeah. Mm. You know, we, right. we have a, um, family member on my husband's side who, uh, was taking a drug for MS that cost $3,800 a month and was paying for it out of pocket and had about $40 left every month. Um, and didn't realize until we had this conversation that she could get it for $5. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's breathtaking for people who are going through a cancer diagnosis and are offered a $3,800 prescription every month that will save their life, quote unquote. Um, yeah, you want it, but can you? And right. if you don't have those advocates in place, if you don't have a social worker there, who knows? Yeah. I mean, and that's the donut hole. I mean, again, uh, looking optimistically, we have come a long way. This is now a conversation. And putting the consumer first is part of the jargon of patient centricity, Yeah, <laughs> which is nothing but jargon. That's a lot of syllables that mean nothing. Yeah. Putting the patient first means protecting the consumer to make the right decision for them because when you go to buy a car you can research that car you can you know haggle with the dealerships and make it you can buy cars at bubblegum machines on the highway now right yeah so because there's a demand for buying cars who helps you make those decisions when you are not expecting to look at an ms drug or Parkinson's drug, mm-hmm. you know, for $33,000 a day, right? Like yeah. that, that is the scathing gap, but the conversation is there. Mm-hmm. Industry is moving fast. There's a lot of new tech and startup companies that are trying to guarantee to the extent that they can, that there are consumers and patients who deserve, mm-hmm. it's not a right, it's a liberty to know what's best for them. And yes, it's a competitive private sector marketplace, but Ideally, the goal is to get patients what they need when they need it, when they didn't know what they needed. Right. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. A lot of words did. right there. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. And so um, I guess a key, I always like to end uh, conversations. Um, 
I never like to end a conversation before, you know, uh, arriving at very clear next steps. So for the people who might listen to this, um, healthcare providers, patients, um, industry, industry, looking at you, LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> what, what do, what do those members of this audience need to work harder on in order to engage the topic of clinical trials more effectively? What can be done better? Um, I think the biggest thing is really putting the patient first and knowing what they need, knowing what they want, um, and knowing what they're willing to do. Um, and I'm using they as kind of a global they because there's a lot of other people usually involved with these decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just making sure that people really understand what they're agreeing to or not agreeing to when they're considering enrolling on something like this. I would say profits and purpose are not opposites. And that if you're working in industry to try and make a real difference out there, recognizing that if this were you and your mom, what would you like your company to do? On top of the fact that if what you're doing doesn't directly impact the human being's ability to make a decision that's right for them, you have to rethink your business model. Mm. And with that, <laughs> on that happy note, <laughs> Cue the theme from the Smurfs. Yeah, right? Yeah. Peter McDowell, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Welcome. Andrew McDowell, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. You must be related. Yeah. <laughs> That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader